Well, I'm excited that this day has finally come. Um, it is with great joy that we get to enter into this time together. And I look forward to seeing the way that the Lord is going to use this. I, I'm so excited about the group that the Lord has brought together um, in, in our own unique giftings. And it, it just thrills my heart to know that, that He has brought us together, that we might proclaim Christ to all people. So... Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Uh, the sermon is going to be on verses 3 through 8, but I, we need to start off by looking at verses 1 and 2. So if you would, read along as I read. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, this is probably one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture. We love reading it. We love memorizing it. We love preaching it. We even love write, write, writing songs about this and I, I think it's because of the imagery. We like the picture that we get of, of taking our lives and laying down on an altar to God. To present our bodies as a burnt offering to God. There's just something very powerful about that image. And it, it, it's, it's what we want, isn't it? As Christians, it's what we want to do. We want to give heart, soul, body, mind, strength, everything that we are to God in worship. You know, we're, uh, it reminds me of, of a popular song that was written about this, uh, this very verse. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. I know that it's my goal as a Christian to deny myself, to take up my cross daily, and to follow God. This is my spiritual worship, the way for me to be holy and acceptable. This is one of the passages that so eloquently and illustriously describes the Christian life. One of perpetual living sacrifice to God. We have to remember the context that came just prior to this. In Romans, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters slowly unraveling this great and glorious doctrine of grace. What it means for God to save us by His mercy. And he gets so overwhelmed and caught up with the wonder of God's mercy that he bursts out in praise, saying, Oh, the, rich, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! And how inscrutable are His ways! Paul can't help but give glory to God. And then he turns here in 12, 1 and 2, and he says, Because of this amazing blessing, because of God's great mercy, lay down your lives. Lay down your lives as a living sacrifice. God saved you. Now worship Him. No longer living for yourself in conformity to the world, but live for Christ. This is the ethical implication of all the theology that Paul had built up to. This, this verse serves as the summary statement for the rest of Romans. Verses 12-3, what we're going to look at today, through 15-13 is actually Paul's explanation of how to live this passage out. But as much as this is truly a glorious passage and one that is worthy of our reflection, are worthy of our thoughts, of our songs, 
I wonder how often we try to live this verse out in a bubble. How often do we take this verse and, and we think it's about me, my worship to God. And we, we rip it away from our relationships to one another. I think it's interesting that the verse says, look at, look at verse 1 again, look closely. It says, present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, as one living sacrifice. He doesn't say, each of you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, nor does he say, present your bodies as living sacrifices. He says, present your bodies as one living sacrifice. And I think there's something significant there. You know, as I was reading commentaries, they make all sorts of excuses for this. They're like, well, this could be a distributive singular, and, and the sacrifice could be trickled down to all the living, you know, the people who are presenting their bodies. But that's backwards to the verse. Some say, well, Paul, you know, kind of uses plural and singular inconsistently. Or they might say something about a, a unique usage of predicate accusative. But I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think there is something about it being a living sacrifice. As we present our bodies together, individually, each taking our own responsibility, because we do have to act as individuals. We are, to a certain level, autonomous. It's when we bring our living sacrifices together, then that we can present ourselves as one true living sacrifice. That is the church. So, here we are. <laughs> if we are to truly live out uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, if we really want to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we must do it together. Because living sacrificially happens in community. And the first truth we see from this passage in verse 3 is that living sacrificially requires humility before one another. Paul says to them, to every one of them, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. The very first issue that Paul gets into after he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, is the issue of pride. And it's interesting because he's dealing automatically with our relationships to one another. It's the first thing that he goes to. And we have to, we have to realize that the pride is a struggle that we all have. It is one of those entanglements of sin that every single one of us is wrapped up in. We inherited it from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we still struggle with it. And if you happen to be sitting here and you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm not really proud of I'm pretty humble. You've just proven that you're proud. I'm sorry. Ultimately, though, the problem with pride is that it's a misappropriation of worship. When we're proud, we're trying to exalt ourselves rather than exalting the one who is worthy of our exaltation, and that's Christ. And we see it manifested in a number of ways. I mean, we think pride often externally. Someone who's arrogant and boastful. But we also see it internally, if we're careful, in our anxiety, in our insecurity. It's just as prevalent there. Pride is self-exalting. We want glory and praise from others. Pride is others effacing. We, in our process of trying to exalt ourselves and to seek glory, we ignore the evidences of God's grace that exist in other people. We minimize them. We push them down. We squash them. Someone who is proud compares himself to 
to others and is discouraged when he doesn't share the same gifts, the same position, the same elevation. And he also covets what they have, wants it for himself. Pride is simply being inconsiderate of other people, not taking other people into account, being completely compassionless. It whines, too, when someone doesn't have compassion on them. Furthermore, we're proud when we fail to recognize and repent of our sin, but then we'll so easily identify sin in other people's lives and point that out. When someone is proud, he's unteachable. He's unwilling to submit to the authority of others. But ultimately, ultimately, pride is contention for the supremacy of God. We want to be in control of the situation. We want to know the outcome. And so we cannot live sacrificially to God if in our daily lives we're trying to take God and burn Him on our altar. That's ultimately what we're doing when we're proud. It's attempting to conform God to our wills rather than submitting to His. And the effects, the effects are huge for the church. Pride hinders our fellowship. It stifles our community. It will suffocate our worship. Pride rejects biblical authority. It euthanizes our teaching and prayer. And it will destroy the church. It will destroy this church. Pride ultimately is conformity to the world. Just like we looked at in in 12.2. It does what the world does. It thinks the way the world thinks. It's not being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And it blinds us to the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And I think, you know, Paul gives us one of the ways to be transformed by the renewing of our minds is simply to think soberly about ourselves, like he says again in verse 3. And then, and then he goes on to present himself as an example of that. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. Paul's not exalting himself here. He's not, he's not attempting to flex his apostolic muscles. He recognizes that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me is not in vain. Paul is judging himself soberly here. He's looking at himself rightly. He knows that his position in the church is solely a matter of God's grace. That is it. He realizes that he is the chief of sinners, made least of the apostles. Paul then adds that we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And here, sometimes people don't like to hear, hear this. That, that we, but we must recognize that faith is a gift from God and that He distributes it in varying measures. He gives faith to a degree to this person, He gives faith to another degree to this person. And that's God's prerogative. He assigns it. These are quantitative words that he's using here. And I think that's also supported in chapter 14 where he's talking about those that are weak in faith and those that are strong in faith. And this is not a point to discriminate. This is not a point to become proud. It's just a recognition of the fact that God has given grace to all. Paul's Paul's whole point here is just saying, God is the one who assigns faith. God is the one who gives the grace. This is a glorious thing, and therefore it's something that we should celebrate. So whether, if you're weak in faith, you know what? 
Praise God for the faith that you have and pray that He will increase your faith. But at the same time, if your faith is strong, give grace to God because He has given that faith to you and pray that He might increase your faith as well. We are really on the same plane. It is not something to boast about, to become proud about, but is rather something to praise God for. So whether we're weak, whether we're strong, mature or immature, we ought to celebrate the grace of God in our lives and discern ourselves rightly. It's not, it's not okay for us to, to try to fool others by looking pious. It doesn't help the body. It doesn't, it doesn't help the body to, to clamor for positions that we know in our hearts that we're not ready for. It's okay to admit that we struggle. It's okay to admit that we're weak in faith. But let's be honest with one another. Let's praise God for the grace that we're given. And let's, let's earnestly pray for one another. Let's come together. Let's humble ourselves before one another. Ultimately, I think the first and primary step towards true humility is realizing that we are sinners, fully deserving of the wrath of God. It starts there. And you know, we can say that tongue-in-cheek, but do we really believe that? Do you really believe that? Do we live like that? Or do in reality we live like, well, we're, you know, we're good enough. We're, we're basically good. Because we have a real tendency to slip into that so easily. But if we're truly good at to think rightly about ourselves, to think soberly, we must affirm that our salvation is a means, is simply the means of God's grace alone. That our faith is because of what God has done. Like Paul, we too will say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Each of us, we're all in the same place. We're all, we're all sinners saved by grace. You and me, every one of us here. You know, you know, a lot more could be said about humility. I would encourage you all to pick up this book. It's Humility by C.J. Mahaney. This is one of the best, short, easy-to-read books on humility. It gets right down the heart. You know, and he deals with he just deals with so much there. It's so practical, and uh, I, I commend that to you. But before we move away from humility, there's just one more thing I, I want to say about that. So far, we, we've talked about humility between one another. I need to be humble towards you, you need to be humble towards her, you know, so on and so forth. But we need to be very careful that we are humble as a church towards other churches. This is a big thing, particularly for church plants. His church plans mean they're starting something new. This is cool. This is hip. You know, we're going to do something so much better. You know, we're, our preaching is going to be better. Our worship is going to be so much more excellent. Our community is going to be real intimate. We're just going to get down in one another's lives, and we're just going to rock it out. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so much better. We're going to meet the needs of the world, not just our community, and we're going to do all that the institutional church just never did before. I mean, those churches just stink. They just don't get it. But we're going to do it right. That's a real easy attitude for those who are in church planting to take. And it is utterly, utterly sinful. And we need to guard ourselves against that. We need to celebrate the faithful labor of so many who have gone before us, who are here struggling with all their might, with all their earnestness, to see God's glory be proclaimed. There are so many wonderful brothers and sisters here 
I mean, it, it has been great. I've spent a lot of time just meeting campus ministers, meeting pastors, and just getting to, to see their hearts. And God bless those guys. You know, this is not a point of contention. We're, we're here simply because we see that there's more need, and we want to meet it. And we want to labor alongside these guys, as they have done so faithfully for so many years. So living sacrificially requires not only our humility before one another, but it also requires an awareness of our position within the body. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that, that the basis for our humility is that we are one body in Christ. This metaphor of the human body highlights both the unity of the body, that we are one, but also the diversity, that we are comprised of different members. And Paul uses this to remind us that though we're one unit, we are one unit, we are one church, we just have very unique and specific functions. And this is something to rejoice in. This is something, again, to give honor for. You know, it was actually in the wisdom of God that he put us in the body. We're not autonomous beings. We're not self-sufficient. We can't go it alone. An ear can hear and hear well, but it can't see. It can't speak. It can't use hands. We need one another. And this is a glorious thing, because God has designed us to do life together, to be a part of one another. Nor did He make us all the same. Unity does not equal equality. We're equal in status, sinners saved by grace, absolutely. But we're different in role. We're different in the measure of faith that he's given us. And that's okay. But God has designed that so that we might together be able to function as a whole. And furthermore, unity is not interchangeability. We can't take an ear and put it in the place of a hand and expect it to work. It just doesn't work like that. He has gifted each of us uniquely, specifically, for the task that he has appointed us to. And so if we are going to operate to our fullest capacity as a church, we need each member to perform each function specifically, as we should, to our to our fullest potential. That's the only way the church is really going to work. Now, you know, I was going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 26. If you're taking notes, you might just jot it down and read it later. But, you know, if there's one thing I can highlight, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose for his function. And with that, there's no insignificant member. There's there's no piece of the body that doesn't have some important function. You know, uh, just think of the example of a car. Especially nowadays, a car cannot function without any one piece. They, They have designed it to where if they're... If there is a wire that is halfway loose, you know, it won't work at all. I mean, like like a in your tire stem, there's that little piece of metal that's right there in the center. It's just a little piece of metal. I mean, who cares? It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have any moving parts, you know, it doesn't really go up and down, doesn't, you know, no gas runs through it or anything. But you take that thing out, and what happens? The tire goes flat. You can't drive the car. So it's insignificant is that little piece seen right there in the tire stand. And I don't know the name of it. It doesn't matter. It is important. And it should be held in honor. Because otherwise, the car won't run. 
So rather than trying to live in isolation as an individual member or aspiring to be something we're not or lamenting what we are because we're that stinking little tire stem, we need to rejoice as it says in the verse that God made us one body in Christ, individually members one of another. And that, that individually members one of another just it floors me. Do you realize when you come to Christ, when you are united with Christ, that you are no longer your own? Not only do you belong to Christ, but you belong to one another. This is a great and glorious thing. This is, this is, this is uh, the fall being flipped on its end. Do you remember what happened in the fall? When Adam and Eve took the apple... Their eyes were open to see their sin. And what happened between them? Do you remember? Do you remember? They, they were then, uh, there was disunity between them, discord. They hid themselves. They, were, they no longer shared the intimacy that they once had. There was discord and strife that existed between their relationships now. And there, furthermore, they were separated from God. They no longer had the same communion with God that they had when they walked with Him in the garden. They were kicked out of the garden and had to live in the wilderness by the sweat of their brow. And since, and since then, man has continued down this descent of separation and disunity until Christ came and lived that perfect life, gave Himself up on the cross, died, was buried, and rose again to life. And now we can be reconciled to God and we can be reconciled to one another. That unity that once existed in the garden is being renewed, being restored, and can exist between you and I. So when we come to church, you know, it's, it's not about our desires. It's about the glory of God and the good of others. We shouldn't, we shouldn't come to church because we desire to be ministered to, because we we have certain preferences or certain needs that we feel like we need met, we need to come with the intention of giving, of being ministers, of, of edifying the body. And when we do, we're always amazed and surprised because in our giving of ourselves fully and freely, we find that God satisfies our every need. We find that God edifies our soul, that God satisfies us. We find ourselves more alive, more full than we ever thought possible. Because we're not thinking about ourselves and our selfish, self-seeking, self-centered desires. We're thinking of others. We're we're putting God first and others second and ourselves third. And that's the way God designed it. And that's great. The essential truth for us to grasp is that, that we are for one another. We belong to one another. If you are here as a consumer... If you're here because you want something special that you didn't think you had in another church, you're wanting to do something new, something fresh, you're wanting to meet, you know, just meet your own uh, selfish motives, then you're here for the wrong reason. That's not why we're here. We're starting Redeemer because we, not because we want something different, but because we feel called to meet a specific need. Our desire is to be missional, not self-seeking. We cannot present our bodies as a living sacrifice if we're consumed by our own selfish, individualistic motives. And so finally, living sacrifice requires not only humility before one another and awareness of our position within the body, but it also, uh, we can't, um, I'm sorry, 
verse 6 and 8 through 8 tell us that uh, it requires the use of our gifts to build up the church. It says, having gifts that differ, each according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God not only makes us unique members within the body, but he also equips us specifically to fulfill the task that he has called us to. Our gifts are given by God in order that we might serve one another. And this is something, when we talk about spiritual gifts, or when spiritual gifts come up in a conversation, rarely revolves around the purpose of the gifts. Usually people talk about gifts as as some sort of uh, reason to exalt themselves. Look at the faith that I have. I have this gift and this gift and this gift. And that's not what it's about. It's about serving the church. God never uses gifts so that we might be boastful, so that we might be proud, so that we might be self-exalting. He gives us those so that we might build up the body. And I think that part of the problem is that when we think of gifts, we try to identify them ourselves. I think that I have the gift of teaching. I do. But you know what? It means very little if it's not affirmed by the body. In fact, it means nothing. And I could be dead wrong about my gifting. Furthermore, it's not based upon what we feel like. I feel like I'll be most useful in the body if I can teach, if I can lead. Everybody wants those positions. They get to stand up here behind this little pulpit and, you know, talk to people. and Yeah, but, but no, if it's not affirmed by the church, it, it means nothing. It's not about how we feel like we can be most useful. It's about how we can be most useful. And to do that, we need the body. We need the body to come around us, to examine us, and to, to tell us, you know, this, these are some particular ways where I see your gifting. And we want to glory in that. Um, you know, we're, we're running short on time, so there's just a couple of things that I want to say. The, the list that Paul gives in 6-8 are by no means uh, all-inclusive, but just are meant to highlight the diversity of the body. And Paul's point in saying, you know, if, you have, if we give to prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. He's suggesting to them that if you have this gift, labor hard in it. You know, just use all your energy in that. Don't try to be something that you're not. Rejoice in the gift that God has given you and use those. Use them to the fullest. And we have to be careful because there are going to be times where we might be gifted in a certain way and we just don't feel like... We just don't feel like using that gift. That's why he says, if you have a gift of leadership, do so with zeal. We have to labor hard that we don't get lazy in that. So whatever your gift might be, use it to its its extent. Don't use it when you feel like it, but pursue it because God has identified that through the church to you. And you want to give glory to God in that. And also, one final thing, don't... Don't shun the gift of God that you have. You know, went through seminary. A lot, of, a lot of guys go through seminary because they feel like they'll be most useful in preaching and teaching. And it's not where they're gifted. 
And I'm glad they had the opportunity to go to seminary. But they go through and they get out and they think, okay, I, I, I got my seminary degree and here I am and I'm going to serve in this church and I'm, it's okay because I got this degree and that's all I really needed. But now I'm over here and I'm trying to do something that God has not equipped or called me to do. And you know what? I am floundering. And they quit the ministry altogether and they hurt the church. They hurt themselves and they hurt the body. Because no one took the time, or they didn't really take the time, to judge themselves soberly. And so don't shun the gifts. Ministry's hard, no matter what capacity you are. Whether, whether you are, are, are just, you know, you're working full time, and you're, you're helping out with the worship team, or whether you're, you're devoting yourselves, like the bulk of your life, to, to equipping the church through a vocational type ministry position. It, it's hard. But God has called each of us. He has equipped each of us. And, and the body needs each of us. There is no insignificant member here. If you're a part of Redeemer's core team, you are just as valuable as I am, as the elders are. It doesn't matter. God has brought us together. He has gifted us particularly to fulfill His purpose, to fulfill that mission of building a redemptive body of believers to build a gospel community. And that's we need one another to do that. So if we are, are going to truly give ourselves sacrificially, we, we've got to humbly embrace our giftings and role um, that God has given to us to serve. If we were to live out Romans 12, 1 and 2, we need 3 through 8, don't we? Because living sacrificially happens in community. And so let's take a minute to just reflect on the message, and then I'm going to have Shane come up and pray for us.